Welcome, I'm Dr. Robert Groves, your host for the Groves Connection podcast. The Groves Connection brings you intimate conversations with pundits, providers, patients, leaders, and laypeople, all to help us understand a contradiction. How can our healthcare system be both magnificent and yet so deeply flawed? We're going inside healthcare to talk candidly with those who know. What they have to say may delight, surprise, frustrate, or at times even anger you. But I invite you to get curious and listen to the truth about healthcare and those who want to fix it. Maybe the answers have been there all along. We just need to make the connection. Are you ready to connect? Philip Randall, welcome to the Groves Connection. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Groves. Great to be here. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, uh, as I've listened to you speak on several of the calls that we've been on for business, for work, uh, I'm just fascinated by the uh, the depth and breadth of your experience. But I want to start way back, uh, as I usually do. And, and so where where were you born? Where did you grow up? What was elementary school like? Well, I was actually born a few blocks down the street from where I am now at what was then the Methodist Hospital. And now it's called Houston Methodist Hospital. And it's one of the large uh, multi-county uh, health systems here in Houston. I think growing up grade school, it was really another time, obviously. Yeah. Um, the 1970s, um, in Houston, I always say it was kind of like the 1950s everywhere else. Um, (laughs) you know, the nurses still wore, you know, those white nurse outfits with the hat and everything. And, um, did they, when, when doctors rounded, did they get up to give their chair away? Was all of that etiquette uh, still part of the mix back then? Or It was. And when you were an inpatient, you would get a little uh, Methodist Hospital matchbook in your ashtray next to your <laughs> hospital table. And the doctors, uh, they all had ashtrays out in the hallways where they would chart because they would all smoke when they yeah. would chart. That was a different time. You know, I went to private school. I went to St. John's here in River Oaks and uh-huh. um, then went off to boarding school a few years after that in Connecticut. Okay. School was always a challenge for me. Um, I didn't really like it. Uh, I think school used to be a much more difficult uh, undertaking back in those days. Now, I think it's a much more learning friendly environment. Uh, I think the kids nowadays do have it a lot better. This is interesting. I wasn't very interested in academics at all. I just kind of, like a lot of children in the 70s, we escaped to television. That was the end of what they called the golden era of television. And so um, when I grew up, I wanted to work in Hollywood. And so I eventually did. Um, And my parents were, you know, not happy. Um, You know, my mother was, and still is, a sitting uh, federal judge. And my father only had one job in his whole life. Um, after they both graduated from Yale Law School, which is where they met, 
and got married. Um, they came down to Houston and he became an associate at, at this very large global law firm called Baker Botts and, uh, and eventually became a partner. And that was the only job he ever had. He didn't want me to go into law. Mm. You know, he was a brilliant attorney and litigator, um, but he hated it the whole time. Mm. Like it was very clear. Like he, he yeah. made sure everyone knew he, he did not like his career. Um, although it was very successful. And then of course, my mother, on the other hand, really liked the law and wanted all of us, uh, me and my two brothers to go to law school. Uh, you're in, did you finish high school in the boarding school in Connecticut? Is that how that came? I did. Yeah. And so, uh, so talk to us about that decision then to go to film school and what is film school and where did you go to film school? But I'd like to walk through that decision and how that unfolded for you. It was Now, you've already expressed that it was always a dream to work in Hollywood. And, and that goes way back, I'm guessing, to elementary school or is it? Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, it, it, it was that upbringing of, you know, the escapist television um, and, uh, the, you know, in the remaining years of the golden age of television. And so I grew up and wanted to do that one day and I ended up doing it. I kind of knew that it probably wasn't the best career choice, but I kind of felt like all those people who get bitten by that bug, that I was going to be that one Super. that made it right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I graduated from boarding school in Connecticut from the mm -hmm. gunnery school, which is now called the Frederick Gunn school. I think my freshman year in Houston was at actually at a Catholic university here. And then I transferred up to, University of Texas at Austin. Okay. And that's where I got my undergraduate degree from. And that's where I went to film school, which was actually a bachelor of science in communications. Huh. Okay. Um, and with an area of specialty of radio, television, film, or RTF. And I don't even know if that degree still exists, to be honest. Huh. I don't, yeah. that was a long time ago. And I don't even know if they have those anymore. Um, and then I went, uh, out to Los Angeles. Okay. While I was in film school, I did a summer internship at the really famous daytime drama in New York called All My Children. Oh, yeah. That had been on yeah, with Susan I Lucci. Remember. Yeah. So I lived in New York City one summer and, um, you know, had my own place in Midtown and worked at what was then called Capital Cities ABC on West 66th Street and uh, worked for that soap opera for three or four months. Yeah, was this in New York that you were doing this? Yeah, yeah. This yeah. Was and what, you, what, what, were your, uh, what were your duties on, on this? I, I'm thinking most of our listeners have no exposure to, you know, that side of the world. So it, it's fascinating. Okay, tell us what that was like. I worked in the production department and uh, we would you know, do things like copy scripts and distribute them to people in their dressing rooms and or in their mailboxes in the, the actor's break room or whatever. Different things. Sometimes we could be extras if we were needed on the set. Mm -hmm. um, sorting mail. People used to get mail back then and uh, stuff like that. answering telephones. You were there for what, like three or four months? And then, three or then four months. Why did you and move on? What did you do next? I came back to Austin and finished, I think I had a year left on my degree. It was a in, gotcha. summer internship thing. Gotcha. Okay. And then I went out to Los Angeles mm -hmm. and started working my way up through, uh, you know, in Hollywood and sure. um, started out at Macy's and <laughs> the Macy's men's store in Beverly Hills. And then um, got my job, my first job in the industry with my bachelor's degree as a tour guide at Paramount Pictures. 
we wore hand-me-down uniforms that had been there since since the days that they shot Laverne and Shirley there. Oh my goodness. And so I, I was a tour guide. And then I we worked in um, what was called audience wrangling at the time because we made several sitcoms on the sound stages there and they would have live studio audiences. Mm-hmm. So we would manage these audience members. You know, we would get them onto the lot, walk them over to the sound stage, line them up, you know, bring them inside, sit them down, explain what was going to happen and, you know, try to keep them quiet when they're supposed to be quiet. And then, you know, and then export them out at the end of the taping. Um, And then from there, I went into independent films and got a job at a company called Overseas Film Group and First Look Pictures up on the Sunset Strip. And uh, we made independent films. Uh, One of them was called uh, Mrs. Dalloway. And then we did um, a couple of famous ones, um, Waking Ned Divine, and others and then the main focus of the company was film distribution over mostly overseas and in different foreign markets and so that was actually very interesting um it sounds crazy but it really is true then i went from there to work for aaron spelling behind dynasty and um, melrose place and i worked in his offices on wilshire it was odd i was actually brought in to help a finance executive shut down his um, film distribution company. And so it was an odd kind of short-term assignment. And then after that, that's when I went to 20th Century Fox, where I was for several years. Um, I was the manager of domestic uh, pay television servicing. It wow. was like so. So so this was not just a brief time you spent in the. Oh industry. no, I spent I spent many I spent many years in Hollywood and in let me, New let, York. Let me ask you, you know, we all bring our experiences to our current roles, etc. Uh, do you think that there are parts of that experience that you still use today that you bring to healthcare to inform that work, or is it? two separate parts of your life. It, it really, I don't, I don't really, uh, not, not much of that really applies to what I do today. Um, the technical aspects of transferring these feature films, we would create, we would do what was called a telecine process and, and we would use the interpositive of all of our feature films. We would make about 35 films a year, which would include, you know, uh, some acquisition titles and we would transfer them to high def video masters mm. to yeah. service the cruise ships, the airlines, the cable TV, the pay-per-view. Yeah. Um, I had my biggest account was HBO. Um, but I didn't work in sales. I think I would have made a lot more money if I had. Yeah. Um, this was a very mature, responsible industry to work in. Mm. Um, I kind of wanted to do something that was more impactful. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I ended up going to um, Cedar sinai Medical now, Center. How old are you at this point? What stage are you in your life? I would say I was in my late 20s, I believe, when I left. They kind of sent me around to different um, departments, uh-huh. clinical rotations, inpatient, um, nursing uh units and you know outpatient clinics like the the diabetes clinic right um there was such a huge celebrity uh, clientele at the hospital that like every day it was somebody else in there um and they would frequently come into our offices 
because that's where we had these VIP nurses that would be assigned to them anytime they came to the hospital to basically take care of any need that they ever had. Yeah. So that nurse would greet them. The nurse wasn't in scrubs and she'd be in a nice suit and she would greet them when their driver pulled up Mm. and be with them the entire time, even if they were there for three weeks. And um, that's the kind of service. At Cedars today, or do you know? I'm sure they don't, because I remember at the time there were some issues with um, what they considered providing two standards of care. Right. Exactly. One for thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And so and and, and at the time, the issue that they the the um, example they took most issue with was with our VIP maternity suites Mm -hmm. and the services that came with those because all the celebrities had their children in these specific suites. Um, and we had to change things up with the way things were provided and built and everything to make sure that we were not providing two standards of care. Gotcha. That was an interesting thing to work on at the time. And I ended up in the diabetes clinic in the ambulatory care building. And I didn't enjoy uh, working uh, clinically in, in an outpatient clinic in those days, especially. I mean, it was just pulling charts and putting pieces of paper in them and, you know, kind of pushing paper around. The physician in charge was an endocrinologist and he was from Rome, Italy, and he had two NIH grants and was doing research in the research building there on the campus. Mm -hmm. So he said, well, why don't you work on this manuscript Hmm. um, that I'm trying to get published and let's see, you know, how that goes. And so of course, I'd never done it before. I completely messed it up. Didn't know really what I was doing. <laughs> he actually could see that. Gave me another talent chance, there. Yeah. And he gave me another chance. And I ended up doing really well in the second one. And then that became my job. And then I, I worked, I worked with people at, at the wet bench in the lab across the street, mm-hmm. became an expert on NIH grants, um, all the different sections of the grants, writing, editing, um, uh, references cited, all that kind of stuff. We, I would work on lots of manuscripts. I would submit them to different peer-reviewed journals to get them published. Um, and that's where my career in academic medicine took off. Well, I tell you what, that's a very valuable skill set. I mean, that is uh, incredibly important. Academics uh, lives on grants. And so that I'm sure that was an opportunity there for you to uh, to go wherever you wanted. How long did you stay at Cedars? I was there for a couple of years. And then my father started to, um, his health started to decline. Mm. And so I came back to Houston at that point from Los Angeles. And uh, I was then a biomedical grant writer at that time for the Texas Heart Institute. Uh-huh. And then I went to the Methodist Hospital next mm-hmm. door where I was born yes. as a scientific writer. And I worked for their research institute doing the same thing I had done out in Los Angeles. Okay. So I really honed my skills at that point. I worked for a very famous uh, MD, PhD, who ended up becoming the chair of the Department of Pathology and Genomic Medicine. Now, who is this? Which uh... Dr. James Musser. Okay, yeah. Uh-huh. A very famous infectious disease specialist. Yeah. Um, he was a tough boss, and he had very high standards and uh, very high expectations. And so I think that that was probably the most formative time of my, my career where 
I was with him for years and, you know, the attention to detail, really understanding the scientific method, right. um, analytics and data, yeah. um, and really understanding the external peer reviewed evidence base and how we actually were contributing to it every single year with our publications and our research studies and everything. After Methodist, uh, I ended up going to work at Baylor College of Medicine in CHI St. Luke's Health. And um, there I was actually for a year, I was the administrator of their global division. So hmm. I went on business to Tanzania. Was that the first health time health. you, I, I know you travel abroad all the time. Was that the first time you really started traveling abroad? Really that Tanzania trip was the first one. And, um, you know, my director at the time, I had gotten her um, the keynote speaker address for the Healthcare in Africa Summit that year, mm. which was in Dar es Salaam. So actually three of us went over there for a week. And so I actually led the whole restructuring of their global division and changed the name of it and the whole way it was structured and funded and everything and what its mission was. And then they transferred me laterally over to be the director of business development mm. for the CHI St. Luke's Health Tri-County um, Provider Network th that we were building gotcha. back when everyone started building these huge provider networks. Oh, is this late 80s, early 90s? Or? No, this this would be um, when I was a director of business development at Baylor. This was five years ago. Oh, is that right? Wow. Yeah. So that was before Aetna. Right before Aetna. And um, so I did the global thing for a year or a year and a half. And then I did the business development thing for a couple of years. Um, and, and that was very interesting too. Um, acquiring provider practices, um, recruiting individual providers uh, to form this you know, large network that was... This is not uh, superficial at all. You're down into the nuts and bolts of uh, administering, uh, creating and administering a network. That's complicated stuff. It was when we would be acquiring a group, mm -hmm. we have to work with the practice managers, you know, yeah. and I had this term, I always referred to him as the Betty Sue, you know, and there was <laughs> always, there was always a Betty Sue who was the practice manager who'd been there for 15 or 20 years. Right. And, you know, when you're going to acquire a practice, you need to know everything about the operations, all the debt they have, how right. everything is done, what kind of contracts they have, you know, contractual obligations, all that stuff. You have to take it, you have to organize it all. You have to do these these spreadsheet schedules for it. It all has to go into the agreement. Right. And what I really found shocking was how much we really did need the Affordable Care Act and this transition to um, transparent, accountable, um, and performance-driven pay-for-performance care models. Yeah. Because these groups with these Betty Sue practice managers were a mess. I mean, you're talking about an office with stacks of half crumpled papers everywhere, and they can't find this contract with this vendor or that one, and everything's a big mess. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they've got the patients in the waiting room, looking at their watch, getting angry. I've been here for an hour, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, you you know, you and well, you I, know, you know Philip, I, I, and the way that, uh, in my mind, the way that that happened, because my dad was a primary care doc, 
And, you know, for the first few years that I can remember, you know, being exposed to that, uh, my mom did his books. You know, my mom was the one who, and, and there wasn't, it, it was so, uh, it was far less complicated than it is today. I mean, really all you had to do was keep up with medical records. Nobody cared what you actually wrote in them. You know, there would be one or two lines and, you know, uh, and uh, probably not even eligible to to read either, you know, like look at those. I used to prepare those charts too. And I would look at them like, what does that say? (laughs) You know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, as the world got more complicated, it's the same people trying to get their arms around it. And you had one complexity and then another, and then another, and pretty soon they're way behind. And oh yeah. And then stepped into, we had a couple where the, where the wives were still managing the books and she had, you know, managed them right into the ground. And they, yeah. so they had like 187,000 in debt, which would have to be of course, part of the deal yeah. is that we would assume their debt and pay it off for them. And I'm thinking, yeah, we really do need this affordable care act. I mean, these, we need to get practices running like a super efficient machine, just like anywhere else. I mean, this is when that the lean Six Sigma and all that kind of stuff was just starting out in our industry. I mean, they had had it in the automotive industry and everything for years. And so it was kind of, uh, it was a painful transition mm. for so many people in the industry, almost all of them. Um, and I think we're kind of getting to the other side of that now mm-hmm. where there's light at the end of the tunnel and, and the people that didn't survive the transition have retired. Um, and then uh, everyone else has basically committed to the change and, and they're kind of over the hump at this point, most mm. of them. I mean, you would just see the craziest things like this one practice had all this debt and they had gone out and bought all of their uh, top performing providers, you know, very expensive imported like Maseratis and Mercedes <laughs> and Porsches. Oh and I mean, gosh. it was a different world back then, you know, that was only five, six years ago. And I looked at today and I think we are in a very different world, very different industry today. And I, but I'm grateful for it, you know? Yeah. yeah. When I made the transition from the delivery side to the payer side, I was astounded by the addition of several more layers of complexity of which I was unaware uh, on the delivery side. Now, mind you, on the delivery side, I was in a large delivery system, uh, the network side, the insurance side, and there's plenty of complexity there, but then you start adding in brokers and you start adding in actuaries and you start, I mean, it just got more and more complex. To me, it is phenomenal that we so often get it right because there is so much to wade through in terms of complexity. What was your experience like of moving from delivery to to payer side? And what was your first role with Aetna? You know, I'm still in my first role at Aetna almost five years later. I experienced the same thing. Uh, I couldn't really come up with an idea of what was right or wrong for a long time because I'd never worked for a payer before. Right. So I'm kind of looking at other people around me to tell me what's good and what's bad. And this is how this should be done or this, right. you know, at CVS and Aetna, you know, one of the biggest mantras that we discuss in meetings is we're trying to make all of this simpler, not just for us, but for our members and patients. Correct. Right. 
you know, how do we make it simpler? How do we simplify it for them? How do we make it more accessible to them? Mm -hmm. How do we make it more effective? So, so what is your role at Aetna? How would, what's the title and how would you describe what you do? I'm the strategic planner for the West and Mid-America territories, which is half of the United States. Right. Um, and I work in clinical operations. And underneath that, I work in community operations and partnerships. Gotcha. So I do population health management research and development work, where we try to develop interventions and programs to improve member health outcomes and lower their health care expense awesome. or cost avoidance is a term that they use now as well. Well, you know, that makes perfect sense because the way that you and I met uh, is the Banner Aetna Kitchen Project. And uh, I listened to you on, on multiple calls and I, I thought to myself, hmm, that guy is interesting and sounds like he knows what he's talking about. Um, and he has some opinions about how things ought to be. Start sharing with us how those opinions developed uh, about community services and what's effective in healthcare. How did you arrive there? And, and, and what do you believe now about the most effective ways to uh, engage patients in their care in the community? It's fascinating to work in this industry right now. Yeah. It's also exhausting <laughs> because the change and the transition is daily and it never ends and it likely never will for our professional careers. Agreed. It's a lot to keep up with, but it's also really interesting. And, and especially when you're kind of leading that entire industry-wide change. Mm -hmm. um, I read in the trades yesterday, you know, they referred, they were writing about CVS, Aetna, and they referred to us as a indus industry disruptor. And I, I really liked hearing that. I liked <laughs> hearing people refer to my company as an industry disruptor. Um, because when I started at Aetna five years ago, before we were bought by CVS, I mean, we were still a kind of an old fashioned insurance company that was about 160 years old. And so I think that um, since I had a very extensive background in biomedical research, right. I applied that to uh, population health management, which when I was doing research, which I constantly do, um, for this current job and, and, and some of the projects that I was going to be working on, you know, that was when population health management, that term was first coined. Right. And I grabbed it and said, this is what I want to do for a living mm. because I think that this type of work is going to have the most impact gotcha. in the way they operate mm. and their success. And so, um, tell me about the banner at the kitchen project, uh, the experience, uh, as a member or a patient, uh, of the banner at the kitchen. What, what do I have to, do I have to have diabetes to qualify? Do I have to have something else to qualify? And I know you could expand this over time and you will, but walk me through that journey. What happens if I say, you know, I raise my hand and I say, I want to do uh, that kitchen project thing. Well, so what it is, is right now with banner at and with, uh, in other markets across the country, um, the program is focusing on members with diabetes and related comorbids. Right now, uh, what the program consists of is it's 10 dinner parties over four months. I love and, that you call it a dinner party, first of all. And that was really That's important. What it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The members that we're trying to target, the research you know, very clearly indicates that they do not have much of a comfort level 
being in a classroom environment. Right. Most of them did not spend the first 50% of their lives in school like we did. Okay. They don't, a lot of them don't, I mean, very few of them have advanced degrees. Mm -hmm. They probably don't, didn't have very good education experiences either. So the last thing we want to do is bring them into a classroom and have PowerPoint slides and have them take notes. Mm -hmm. You know, that we, we didn't want to use terms like educate or learn or teach or class or things like that. So we try to keep those terms out of the lexicon for the program. Gotcha. Um, we call the gatherings dinner parties or luncheons, depending on who we're targeting. Um, so that sounds fun, right? Yeah, like yeah. I get a program where I get to go to a bunch of parties. Yeah. I'll do that. And the food is really good. And I get to meet really cool people. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Yeah. And then they get there. And it's in this really cool teaching kitchen environment where you have a chef and he's got this food laid out and you show up after work and you get a really cool apron that you get to keep that says banner Etna kitchen on it. And the chef shows you what's on the menu that night. And it's always going to be healthy and very supportive of your diabetes management and Mm -hmm. your weight management your lipid management, your blood pressure management, and but it's going to be delicious and it's going to be relatively easy to make, right? Or really easy to make some of them. And then you get all your ingredients and you go to your individual cooking stations. We have about two or three people per cooking station. Gotcha. And they cook this meal and the chef walks around and he helps them, you know, learn how to cut vegetables properly, learn how to saute, learn how to blacken something in a pan, you know, things like that, or in an oven. And then everyone sits down at this very long dinner table and they eat the food that they make, that they just made. And there's a dietitian who sits at the head of the table who covers the curriculum with them through what we call directed conversation. And so they get a little two page curriculum, which has the menu on it for that evening, plus a couple of these what are called USDA 10 tip sheets. But they don't have to sit there and look at them and, you know, write on them. It's all done through directed dinner conversation. Yeah. And they get to a bag of the ingredients from that night and they go home so they can practice again. And one of the things that really motivated me towards this model, besides all of the research that we did in teaching models and and, you know, targeting different types of students at different ages and what would work best for these targeted students versus these. And, you know, um, one of the things was the experience of the dinner party Mm -hmm. in our lives. No matter how many hors d'oeuvres are being offered in the living room, everyone is always in the kitchen at these dinner parties because it's exciting. Yeah. And you get to watch them make the food it's mesmerizing and it's fascinating and you learn even though you're not even trying to learn. So that's kind of what we want. And you remember the conversations about what people are saying. And then you have this dinner conversation and you remember it all, you know, you retain all of it because it's so interesting. And then you have this chance at dinner to share about your experiences with diabetes and with grocery shopping and with fast food, because most of the members that come into this program, I would say almost every single one are pretty serious fast food eaters when they enter the program. Yeah. It's so life-changing, the program. 
we have members that get choked up a lot at dinner um, yeah, saying yeah. things like, um, by the way, whenever, they're choking on the food, just to be clear, they have, they're not choking on the food. They're getting, they're emotional. getting emotional they're just, yeah, because yeah. they say like, my mom and dad never taught me any of this. Mm. That comes up a lot. And that can be an emotional time for the member because they probably never knew before they came into this program that, that parents did teach. Um, And so it can be upsetting. And then our response to that, because we have the whole program researched. I mean, we have the messaging mapped out. We know what kind of responses to say to different things. Our response to that is, yes, it is. It can be emotional, but don't dwell on the past and what didn't happen in the past. Focus on today and the fact that you have these skills now and you can make these amazing changes Mm -hmm. and how awesome your life is going to be going forward. A lot of these members have never been able to lose weight and they start losing weight in the program. And that's very emotional for them. So, And hemoglobin A1Cs are coming down. I mean, uh, blood pressure is coming. These are, and we know this happens, right? We know that this is effective. It's a matter of how do you engage people to actually do it? And the brilliance of this program is that uh, it's sort of stealth education and stealth engagement that leverages uh, you know, our social nature. I mean, this, you know, when I, you talked earlier about, uh, uh, I think you said there were three things. It was uh, smoking, exercise, and nutrition. And, and I, I think about the big four and the big four for me are exercise, nutrition, sleep. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the, the fourth category can be thought of in a variety of ways, but it's about meaning, purpose, stress management. And guess what? A dinner party is part of that mix, the connection that you make with other people, the ability to be out and social, to share stories, to interact with other folks. That can be such a huge stress reliever. We are by nature programmed to want to interact with others. And and this program meets all three of those needs very, very quickly. It, you've expanded it somewhat now too. It's not just about dinner parties anymore. Tell, tell us a little bit about how that's working. When we were developing the program, um, a lot of the Feeding America banks also have teaching gardens and they have programs developed around that because they go really well with each other. So we decided to try to do Saturday garden days as part of the Banneret in the Kitchen program. And of course, we started that at the beginning of this year and the members loved it, um, where they actually get out in the garden, which is near the teaching kitchen. And, you know, they've got hoes and shovels and they've got, you know, these gardeners out there showing them how to grow vegetables, grow fruit, grow herbs, um, how to harvest them, how to take them inside and then cook them. Um, We teach them how to compost. So when they have fruit and vegetable waste, they, they, they can, they don't have to waste it. They can put it to good use. Um, we teach them how they can grow their own vegetables and herbs, even if they live in an apartment. Yeah. Yeah. Life in America is extremely challenging. Yeah. Um, it mainly has to do with the capitalist economy that we have that is, um, really good for employment opportunity and making money. Um, but it's not, very good for other things. And so a lot of the influence in America that we're confronted with and exposed to from childhood on up 
comes from very large corporations. True. You know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars a year in, in, in well-spent advertising dollars right. and messaging campaigns. In the absence of very hands-on committed parents, which is very difficult to do in America because we don't even have stay-at-home parents at all anymore, yeah. like when I was a child, both parents work nowadays and sometimes yeah. one of them works more than one job. And so um, what ends up happening is you end up being shaped and influenced by all these external advertising forces that mm. teach you that kind of fill these voids that are missing because these traditional societal constructs no longer exist. Yeah. You know, the kitchen tables don't really exist anymore. Mm. Everyone's working all the time and you don't get to see each other that much. Um, the children are expected to do a lot, um, you know, with school and other activities and, you know, where do you get all your influences that actually shape you into the young adult that you're going to become in your twenties and thirties. And so it's frightening. <laughs> it's not surprising that we have a lot of members in the banner at the kitchen program that said, my parents never taught me how to cook. My yeah. parents never taught me how to eat. You know, we frequently, you know, uh, had pizza delivered or, um, they would stop off and get a bucket of chicken on the way home, which is exactly what they're told to do right. in these advertisements every day. You stop at KFC and you get a bucket and it comes with all these sides and you bring it home. And that's how everyone has a good meal. People have become more sedentary than ever before. True. Um, they've become more isolated because I think social media and all this technology, it leads, it gives people a false impression that they're actually more connected to others than before when really they're not. Yeah. And it's not just that people's diets are worse than ever, but their lack of physical activity is the worst that it's ever been. Yeah. So we wanted to address all of these things in this program, um, because at the end of the day, you know, what are you teaching in the banner at the kitchen? I mean, you can say we're teaching them how to cook. You can say we're raising their health literacy. You can say that we're teaching them about nutrition and we're teaching yeah. them about physical activity and about gardening. But really, at the end of the day, the banner at the kitchen is teaching them how to live. So when you talk about how comprehensive it is, mm -hmm. at this point, we have to go and we have to teach them and help them in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, as you were talking, there are, there are a number of things that, that came to mind. One is that we're starting to understand so much more uh, about health and nutrition. I mean, we, we are finally learning that you can't solve everything with a pill. Uh, you know, that it really is about the habits that we have every day that are far more influential. I mean, most people don't realize that the four, nearly $4 trillion that we spend on what I call rescue medicine, that has about maybe a 15% influence on uh, uh, health span, which is how well you live and lifespan, which is how long you live. Uh, you know, the, the rest of it, uh, uh, you know, there's some that's environment uh, and we can talk about uh, uh, that at some other time, but a, a big piece of it, 30, 40% is personal habits. You know, how you eat, how you exercise, how you manage your stress. And uh, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I think about where we've uh, come to uh, kind of like, you know, the dopamine circuit where you get a quick hit. Uh, instead of, uh, you know, uh, the full 
experience, the nutrition, uh, the full experience. So with drugs, right, we're bypassing uh, real connection and uh, real joy to get that quick hit. And then it goes away and we have to do it again. And, you know, the way that we've learned to live and eat is kind of like that. Even social media, you know, the likes, all of those things, they're not real. They don't have the nutritional substance of a real social relationship. And yet we do it because we get that dopamine hit, but it's, it's a pale imitation of what's available to us in programs like the ones that you're developing. I absolutely agree. Yeah, And I think that, and one of the things that scared me the most was now I'm seeing in the news that they are coming out with a couple of different prescription medications that can make you lose fat. It's very upsetting to me um, because the truth is that's just a small part of it. You know, Um, we teach basic concepts in this program about how, for instance, the human body was designed to move. If you're sedentary, even if you're not overweight, even if there's a pill that makes the fat magically melt off, if you're a sedentary person, with a $400 a month cable bill and who watches a tremendous amount of television, yeah, you can get yeah. into an extreme polypharmacy situation and you're still not going to be healthy and you're not going to be happy. Yeah. So you need to move. And it's not that bad. That's another thing we teach them. We don't, we're not trying to threaten them into anything. We show them, you know, one of the reasons why a lot of interventions don't work is because you're not giving them the alternative. You're not showing them a better way, right? We're telling them we can show you a better way where you're going to be happy and healthy because you're going to be moving around and you're going to reevaluate your life and your priorities. And, you know, maybe you should spend less money on, you know, your cable bill, maybe a little bit more on some good, you know, exercise shoes and, you know, going out to those cool hiking trails and walking. And all gardening, this I mean, that's exercise. I mean, it, it, you yeah. don't have to be running a marathon to benefit from activity. And, and it really can be that basic. I mean, if you look at green zones, which are these zones where people live uh, an unusually long, healthy life, uh, part of it is that they just walk everywhere. It's not that they're yeah. out, you know, hitting the gym four days a week. They're using their bodies as they were intended to move. Yes. And even up into their 90s, you know, people are out gardening and, and walking to the store. And, and we haven't set up our communities that way, but there are ways to make that happen. There are ways to, to, to and, and that's what you're doing, basically. Is, and so when you say this is teaching people how to live, I absolutely, you know, that resonates with me. And I understand that completely. So you've been very generous with your time. We've been going for more than an hour, hard to believe, but we have. And and, and so I want to ask you one last question. Um, uh, What do you see for our future in healthcare and the strategies that you're thinking about and planning? Where do we go from here? expanding this program is, is fundamental. I get that. And, you know, people may ask, is it scalable? And, and my question back would be, can we afford not to scale it? But uh, talk to us about what the future holds for us. It's funny when people are concerned about the scalability of this program, you know, I say, well, you work in care management. I mean, you know, that's a much larger, more expensive, clunkier uh, program than this. I mean, is that scalable? I mean, you're employing 150 times the amount of staff that we are, and it costs 150 times more. So I think that, uh, where the industry, 
industry is absolutely going is it's continuing down the path that it's on today, which is we still have to control costs and we have to do a better job. And I think we've come a long way, but we have a little bit further to go. And so we're, we're more and more focused on moving into less expensive care models that are even more effective than what we have today. So the idea that everything in healthcare needs to be done by a, a physician, a surgeon, or a nurse is just not the, the case. Yes. We've moved very far away from that now. Um, we were using nurse practitioners for a while now, and social workers, and now we're actually moving further from that. We're really into the community health worker mm. models. Um, yes. that we've, we've reviewed a couple of really successful evidence-based community health worker models across the country. Um, especially for supplementing the clinical work that the providers are doing. These community health worker models are very effective at connecting people to community resources when they need it and addressing those social needs, okay, in a way that is very cost-effective, okay? Um, as they're, far peers as the, they're, they're peers of the people that need the help, and, and so they're yeah. far more likely to get listened to and because they, 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 you know, they believe that this person is like me, and they understand what my challenges are. Exactly. And then on top of that, I would say for care management, we're, we're, we're going to continue to see care management in clinical settings that can be effective. I think for payer care management, we're moving much more towards what's called an advocacy model. Yes. And that's a little bit of care management light and a, and a heavy dose of member services and things like that. And it's all through one main phone number and website portal, because that is what patients, members, consumers want is they do not like siloed fragmented experiences. They want right. one way to contact their payer. They want one number. They want to deal with one department mm -hmm. that covers all that. That's kind of where the whole industry is moving to from, you know, on the payer side is to an advocacy model. Um, and I think that, um, you know, healthcare is local. Yes. We fully understand that now. You know, I remember when I was a child, we had to drive for 25 minutes to go to the Texas Medical Center to see a doctor, you know, and we lived in the city. Um, you know, it's not like that now. Now it's local. We get it. I think we're going to have a huge virtual component that's going to work really well. Um, although I think we need to be realistic about what the limits of virtual care are. True. I don't believe necessarily that, for instance, somebody should do an annual physical virtually, although mm -hmm. I have had some presentations recently where that was suggested that we do that. Um, I think for some people who don't even have a primary care doctor and who wouldn't otherwise go to the doctor, I think it's okay for them to enter our system virtually. And then, you know, if that's how we get them into a virtual room with a provider who can then say, you know what, I, I'm kind of thinking that this might be an issue and you're going to have to go to this minute clinic or somewhere for somebody to, you know, feel your thyroid or something, um, or do a blood draw, um, that that can be beneficial to get people into the system that way. But, you know, I, I think that, I think that we're, we're heading towards a lot more virtual care, um, mm -hmm. than ever before. And that's here to stay. So, yeah. but that's never going to replace what we discussed in these, very significant behavior change programs that really provide the value 
those are, are not going to be virtual. I know a lot of people try to do effective virtual programming like this. And it might be an option during a catastrophic public health emergency maybe, but the truth is what's gonna be the most effective and we now have the data to show it are those, those more traditional constructs where the people need to be together in order to have that very effective peer component. Yeah, ideally uh, it's a hybrid model where the, and ideally all of the technology that we talk about and uh, much of which is the shiny object that captures people's attention, those are just tools. They're mm -hmm. tools to serve the relationship between that member, patient, consumer and uh, the, the health system. And that might be through a community uh, health worker. It might be through and, and should be through all of those at some point, probably, because that, that that's the way uh, the structure should work. But uh, it should never replace the relationship. It, it is a tool to enhance the relationship is the way I think about it. We're all going to have to be risk takers. We're all going to have to bear our share of risk in yeah. our new system. Yeah. So quality metrics are here to stay. Uh, so, you know, that's that's another, and that has had a great impact on our industry as well yeah. with ensuring better outcomes and really paying for performance and really um, promoting standardized quality care. That's here to stay as well. Uh, Philip, it has been such a great pleasure to uh, to learn more about you and, and uh, uh, to hear your ideas. Uh, uh, many of which we've already implemented and, and uh, can't wait to implement more. So thank you so much for sharing all that with us. Is there anything else that you'd like to, uh, to say uh, before we wrap up here? No, just thank you, Dr. Groves. This has been a great pleasure of mine to be on your podcast. And um, I know I'm holding company with some amazing people uh, who have been interviewed before me. So I'm, I'm very honored. It's been wonderful, and I look forward to working with you and Joanne and really just transforming Arizona and the entire healthcare system there. Well, Philip, I can't wait. And with that, we are going to say uh, so long. Take care. You've been listening to The Groves Connection, your connection to the inside story on healthcare, featuring in depth interviews with those who know. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review to keep the connection going, and hit the subscribe button to be sure you never miss a beat. The Groves Connection is produced by Dr. Robert Groves. Original music, editing, and creative direction provided by Alden Groves. Production support, content guidance, courtesy of Janae Sharp and Elizabeth Barrett. Thank you for listening. The professional ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast are mine and do not reflect those of any current or past employers. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on The Groves Connection.